Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Welcome back to part two of Subversive Blondes, and we're still on Marilyn's story. Sort of sub-part 2A Marilyn Monroe. I don't know what we'll call it. We'll have to come up with a good name. But we just were noticing that in the previous episode... We had likened, or I had likened Marilyn's experiences and her behavior to former screen goddess uh, Marlena Dietrich. And uh, Zoe had an interesting point. Well, I enjoyed the recording the last part so much. And I think that there's so much to say about Marilyn. There's so much detail about her life. Mom said, well, I hope I'm not saying anything boring. And I was saying, no, it's all very interesting. She's been cutting out a lot of the stuff of the nitty gritty of Marilyn's contracts and her film career stuff and sticking to the the emotional story and the psychological story of Marilyn. And I I think the reason for that is uh, though Marlena Dietrich was a fascinating and complicated and talented woman, I think Marilyn is more complicated and I think that she is enigmatic and irresolvable. She is in a way like a, a cone. You know, you're presented with this being and you're not going to resolve her. She's not going to be one thing or the other. She is all at once or one thing serially. And there are sort of layers upon layers in terms of they shift. One comes up, she's the wily strategist. And then the little tiny waif child comes up. And then the insecure actress comes up. And then the sexy, confident woman comes up. And But, but behind that facade, or I wouldn't even say the facade, behind the strata that is foremost, all the others are back there and they are informing and influencing them. No one's ever really going to be able to put their finger on Marilyn. And I think that is really one of the reasons why the image of her as the sexy, dumb blonde, sexy, dumb, innocent blonde, right, available blonde, yes. is so prevalent is because that icon, that imagery is solid and easy and and concrete so simple and archetypal and 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 enjoyable too then the real person is frustrating and enigmatic and and she could be beautiful and ugly at the same time it's such a mixture of you know innocent manipulative good good qualities bad qualities or qualities that we would judge good or bad but i think in her there's almost an amorality kind of yeah, there is. Happening. So anyway, that is why I think there is a lot to say and ultimately why some, in some way it's kind of... Oh yeah, and I wanted to make a correction from last episode. Well, may or may not be a correction, but uh, my source, the, or the sources I read, said that Scudahoo, Scudahay, which I just really wanted to say that again anyway, was Marilyn's first picture. IMDB differs from that, so if you look on there, I don't know which is correct, but there is uh, a movie called Dangerous Years that apparently was, they're saying, was her very, very first appearance. It might have been also a question of when they were released, because they might not have been released in the order that she actually acted in them. And then there's another movie that's listed called You Were Meant For Me, and it's, they designated unconfirmed and uncredited. So, okay, whatever. I, I, think the first time she really seriously appears is Scudahoo, Scudahay. I'm going with that. Anyway, so we're going to get on here with, with Marilyn's film career. We've talked about her sort of internecine years where she is 
modeling and floating around and having an affairs and trying to get a foothold and working hard as a model and really trying to get into the, the studio. And I did talk about last episode about how she finally did get a six month contract and uh, with under, uh, I was going to say Daryl Zanuck, but that's, it's actually Richard Zanuck who is the, the head of the studio at the time. And he doesn't like her doesn't think she's pretty, finds her really dull, and doesn't want her under contract. But everyone else is totally pushing for her. So Marilyn gets in and she starts making some uh, few, like, scudda who scudda hey, little appearances and little movies. Her big quote-unquote breakout role was in The Asphalt Jungle. I will recommend this film to you. It's a, it is a good film. Now, you haven't seen it yet. It's a film directed by John Huston. Now, John Huston was a top-ranked director. He's also an actor, but a top-ranked director who had a lot of respect. He's a great artist. Kind of touching, too, to let you know that the very last film she was in was also directed by John Huston. That's what I was thinking, yeah. So there's kind of a connection there. Marilyn plays... Marilyn. She plays the Marilyn character in this situation. It's a heist movie. It's a uh, a betrayal movie. It stars uh, some really top-ranking stars who are really quite good. So Marilyn was very lucky to be in the film with them. Sterling Hayden, if you know who that is. Louis Calhoun and Jean Hagen were in it. And Jean Hagen is actually a really good actress. She's a great favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen Singing in the Rain, she plays the has a terrible voice who can't uh, be in the talkies and they so she's she's very funny she's pretty much the only one I remember from that movie <laughs> yeah well she's terrific and I don't want to get too digressive here but Jean Hagen is one of those actresses that as I've watched so many movies I'll see her come up again and again and the parts for women especially women who are not the leads were so thankless and so small and she just injects wonderful bits of personality personality and wryness and she really is able to color her character in such a way that if you watch her you really feel some interest and connection to that character maybe we should do a little episode on Jean Hagen Uh, we don't have to watch everything she's ever been in but I do like her a lot anyway getting back to our main path here we've circled around and we're talking about Marilyn Monroe And we're calling her Marilyn Monroe now because she has developed her character and she's starting to act in the movies. And she is presenting herself fully as Marilyn Monroe, film star, soon-to-be film star. So that is why I'm shifting her name, even though she didn't change her name legally until 1954. What year are we in now? We're uh, in the late 40s, around 1950. Let me check and see. Uh, The Asphalt Jungle is 1950, so we're right in the new, new decade here quite right mid-century and she is terrific in this film and people really did notice there's a lot of how shall I say it mythology around her getting this part because first of all Marilyn becoming the megastar that she became John Huston wants to claim oh yeah I knew she was great oh yeah I saw what was great in her well he really kind of didn't. He thought she was okay. I mean, he didn't think she was bad or anything like that. He thought she was okay, and he used her very well. But he never really kind of got the whole package, what she was going to become. But she's very good in this film, and she really respected John Huston. And he did. He treated her decently. He was not unkind to her, and especially since he was such one of those man's men who was always sleeping around and you know being very bluff and hardy and smoking cigars and he was just one of those guys boys club guy 
but he was decent to her. It sounds like he treated her pretty well. But apparently, now this is the story as it goes, is that she was so, so scared when she went in to audition. She asked if she could lie down. Hmm. Because in the film, she spends some of her, actually a fair amount of her time, lounging on a couch, <laughs> lying back and lounging on a couch. Because she's a sexy mistress to this Louis Hel- Calhoun's character. And Louis Calhoun, I think, he or here, here he must be, you know, like 50 and he looks like he's 60. You know, he's a, the older, rich, n- not very attractive guy. And she's his honey candy, you know. And she's always going around and talking about her clothes and going on a vacation. And she just doesn't have a clue. The character doesn't have a clue. And so Marilyn wanted to lie down because probably that's how she practiced it <laughs> um, in the position she would have been taking when she played the role with her her coach, Natasha. Natasha, who was Nat- in love with her. Who was in love with her from last... Ooh. And Jealously in love. V- very much so. Especially since Marilyn was not a lesbian and she was not interested in a relation, that kind of relationship with her. Yeah. Yet, I think she played poor Natasha. And Natasha also played Marilyn a little bit. She also uh, extracted a ton of money, not from, well, some from Marilyn. But she was getting huge amounts of money for a coach. Because Marilyn was so dependent on having her there or she couldn't do anything. So they had to pay her up to be on set, essentially. Yeah. So the movie paid her. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Yeah, and she was getting quite cush. a bit of money. Yeah, it was very cush. But I don't think she was a very happy person, so... Probably not. Yeah. Anyway, so I urge you to watch this movie. It is really, really the first one you need to watch. Unless you're just really curious about Marilyn's very, very early years. She is beautiful, that she's gotten her look down. She's gotten the... I wouldn't say her Marilyn character is fully fledged here. It is almost there. She's innocent and sexy, but there is, in her later roles, in her later character that she creates, there is a fragility and a, a depth of, to the fragility that you don't see earlier on. That's the best way I can describe the factor that takes that sexiness and that innocence and that beauty and raises it to this iconic status. She manages to develop it later and bring it out and into the role rather than just being it. So that begins to emerge a little later where it's just in everything she does. It's the same quality that for me that I see in Judy Garland. Mm. The fragile, deep, fragile brokenness that somehow manages to allow that person to touch something ethereal, something beyond themselves, something soulful, if you will. I, I'm, I'm trying to get words basically that allows them to touch the ineffable. I see what you're saying, especially equating those two. And they did have similar lives in a certain sense of just of all the chaos and and substances and everything but yeah and the lack of the lack of emotional support yeah the being used all of that yet they both were supremely talented uh people and great artists in different venues but great artists but she's still lovely and she does a very good job and she plays the role very well and as you watch it, it, it this is always the case in every film that she does she's always a little out of tune out of step out of reality with the film itself usually she's a little bit heightened 
the very character that she creates, the lacquered nature of it or whatever, is mm-hmm. like just very hyper or like creates an extra human character. Yeah. So, so when she comes on screen, she just kind of stands out from everyone else. And part of that is the, you know, the, the platinum hair and everything. But I don't know. She also just has the presence. Yeah, it, it yeah definitely is. Because even in her more realistic roles, she still has that quality. And, and well, we'll go on to the roles and then we'll discuss it rather. Yeah. So we can concretize it for, for you. Yeah. Uh, so this film is also very funny. Marilyn's part is she, she's still funny funny in terms of a, a likability that none of the other characters have and even though she's completely venal there's a, a there's this line in the uh i'm sorry venal yeah meaning uh like i'm not thinking of a good word for it okay yeah materialistic yeah. yeah and so for example there's there's a scene where she <laughs> oh this is so funny so there's this big heavy balding big nose dude that that's her sugar daddy right and she calls him Uncle Lon. <laughs> so, oh, Uncle Lon. <laughs> Swanning around in her tight clothes and her, and her platinum hair. And he's, he is caught up, Uncle Lon, is caught up in a criminal activity. And they're closing in on him and he's sweating. And it, so what he wants to do is he wants to get her away for a while. And so he's going to send her to, I forget where it is, it's to some beach resort. First of all, she's, there's, it's a very upsetting thing, but Oh, she's going to get to buy a new bathing suit. <laughs> she goes on and on about, well, I could have gotten the green one, but <laughs> she goes on and this, this whole little speech about this bathing suit. And it is so funny and delightful in the midst at, at, where, where as everyone around her is just sweating bullets over this horrible situation that includes robbery and murder. And it's it's very, very good. And so she was noticed from this film and well uh, reviewed but the studio Richard Zanuck didn't like her they didn't really put her in much of anything so after uh the the asphalt jungle she ends up having a whole string oh my gosh there's a bunch of little parts in movies we've never heard of through 1950 and 1951 then we have maybe the real the real biggie to that everyone thought was going to propel her into getting a contract and becoming a star and it got her more work but it, it and she it just didn't make her a star it didn't it didn't propel her to the first ranks of being a leading lady and that is all about eve super famous movie tons of oscars stars the fantastic betty davis now betty davis is an old style star Ooh, yeah she's not coming from you know any place where she's uh, going inside and trying necessarily to find the reality of the character. She's a true old style actor where she puts it on and she pumps it out. She's powerful though. Yeah. yeah. She kicks ass. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, they don't really have, I think they have a, a, like a few exchanges of lines, but they don't really act together. It's the actress, Ann Baxter, who is the titular Eve. And the whole film is about the theater and, jealousy and you know who's going to be the top and that kind of stuff manipulation yeah yeah and so that was that was that but the interesting thing here is that a Marilyn just she looks like this little fluorescent light in the midst of regular incandescent light bulbs or something she just yeah. comes on and she's so beautiful she's so bright she's refining her Marilyn character because she plays that character again and she's funny and she's witty and she plays off that thing about the beautiful sexy woman using the coin of the realm to get ahead 
She plays an actress in the movie who's, you know, hanging out with the the guys and maybe sleeping around a little bit. Um, and she's particularly attached to uh, Addison DeWitt, who is the film critic. And she's trying to make it into getting roles and so forth as an actress. And he's she's kind of his protege. And Addison DeWitt is played by George Saunders. Again, another terrific actor, terrific character actor. And he's got this kind of deep, resonant voice that he that comes out through his nose as he uh, delivers some witticisms, some sardonic witticisms. He's always kind of sardonic. He's rarely sincere in any of his movies. He's just kind of half-lidedly sardonic. And he has Marilyn tagging along after him and brings her to the parties and so forth. Yeah, so she just kind of streaks through the movie, but she stands out. Now, here's a great little story about this movie. Oh. I love this. At the time, Saunders, or I shouldn't say Saunders, it's Sanders. It's S-A-N-D-E-R. Sanders was married to Zsa, Zsa Gabor. Do you know um, Zsa, Zsa Gabor? She vaguely, was, yeah. She's a Hungarian blonde. She and her sister yeah. Ava Gabor were, they, they were actresses. I don't know how they ever, I think they only ever made any money by getting married. She was married like seven times. <laughs> and they were sex bombs and bombshells and more famous for being famous and... Yeah, I can, they were like celebrities who yeah. appeared in movies sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And she was married to, to George Sanders. And for some reason, and again, I don't have all the skinny on this, but several sources have mentioned this. She took against Marilyn big time because she was afraid that her husband was going to fool around or was fooling around or whatever. And she confronted Marilyn and gave her a really hard time and just wow. made this big stink about it. And according to Marilyn, she wasn't sleeping with George Sanders. <laughs> she was busy elsewhere, you know. And that was uh, the, the big kerfuffle going on there. I thought that was really funny. I wonder how Marilyn felt like about that, if she was righteously indignant or, you know, she some level kind of loved the drama. Oh, I think, I yeah, I think she loved anything that gave her attention, even if she didn't like it. Yeah. Now, around this time, in this period, she met um, Joan Crawford. Mm. Apparently, again, this is according to Marilyn, so I don't know how correct the details are, but she met her, and Joan Crawford was the doyenne of Hollywood. She had been so successful in the 40s, and as we came into the 50s, she was getting she was getting older, and she was less successful. And what happened is she seemed to take Marilyn under her wing, and like Marilyn didn't have a whole lot of clothes, fancy clothes, really nice clothes, and. Joan Crawford said, well, you should wear this, and this this style would suit you, because she was an expert on dressing well and the right things to wear. And She was all about being a lady. And, of course, Marilyn, when she wanted to, she used her cleavage for good effect. That wouldn't have gone down well with Joan Crawford. But, anyway, supposedly Crawford invited her over to her house and took out gowns and things, and she said, now this, and was explaining stuff to her and telling her. And Marilyn said she was thinking, well, maybe she'll give me some of these. <laughs> right. Some of her old ones, right? You know? And apparently, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's very all about Eve kind yeah. of moment. Crawford basically said, well, here's a list of things you should buy. And Marilyn's like, I don't have any money, you know? But she didn't say that. And so she went away quite disappointed, and, and Crawford wanted to take her shopping, not to pay, but to add. Marilyn never followed up with that because she was too embarrassed because she didn't have any money. And I thought that was interesting because the story does very much jibe with Joan Crawford's personality and her style and that she was well she came from 
severe poverty. I mean, I, I do want to give her that. I mean, she came from very, very, very bad poverty and she really pulled herself up and she did sleep around a lot and she did do nudie films and so forth in her early years to survive. And she did all that hard stuff and she wanted totally to deny that. She wanted to sweep it under the rug. There's a whole story about the scandal of this supposedly nude film of her, maybe stag film, maybe even more than nude where it arose in Hollywood at some point for blackmail purposes. And Eddie Mannix, who was the fixer for the studio, and there's supposedly there's all kinds of machinations about covering it up and destroying it and so forth. So no one knows whether it really existed or not. I wouldn't be surprised because what, what could she have done? But she was all about being a lady and she would deny anything, sleeping around anything she would deny. She was very tight with money, very, very tight with money. Very, we would say selfish and stingy based on the experiences she'd had in her life. So I'm not surprised. I would I would believe it. And then another little encounter that Marilyn had at this time, which is our former subject, Marlena Dietrich. Uh-huh. And they met, and Marlena was definitely a lesbian, and she, you know, met Marilyn. And Marilyn had this one white, I don't know if it was mink, but one white fur coat, very fancy, that she wore it all the time. And Mar- when Marlena wet- met her, she was wearing it and had gotten a smear of red lipstick on the collar. Uh-huh. And Marlena just found it just erotic. But as far as I know, they never had a close friendship or a relationship or any kind of mentoring or anything went on with that. But there was, I just thought that was a cool story. <laughs> erotic. Erotic. And uh, so I liked that little story a lot. And then finally, in 1952, she gets uh, one of these realistic movies. She doesn't have the platinum hair. She has... Blonde hair, but it's in the black and white, it looks it's kind of dark blonde. And she plays uh, a factory worker in They Clash by Night. That's an interesting one. For one, especially having been introduced to Marilyn as Marilyn through like Some Like It Hot, right? You know, her full persona to go to this movie where it's so unglamorous and she's she is a factory worker, which you don't see that much of. Um, and she you know, has this fraught relationship with the, her husband in this movie. Well, it's her boyfriend. Her boyfriend. It's kind of, um, I don't know, Streetcar Named Desire era, kind of. It's like a, mm-hmm. B, a B version of Streetcar <laughs> Named Desire to my mind. Oh, interesting. A little bit. That's interesting. Well, it's a film that's directed by Fritz Long, the great Fritz Long. So she, again, she's working finally again with another great director. Marilyn was still difficult. She couldn't remember lines. She came late, which just shows how destiny was behind her and how great she was and could look through the lens because she continued to work and she was late and she couldn't remember her lines. At this point, she was not taking drugs. She was not addicted to anything. She was just nervous and she was very, very frightened. And she always brought that coach with her and that caused a lot of friction with directors, too. And mm. different directors handled it in different ways. But uh, Fritz Long, he managed to work with her. And she had a lot of scenes, and she did really well. She plays a factory worker who's engaged to this young man. And she is uh, wearing jeans. Yeah. And... I know. She, I think she's got a cute style in this movie. She's very cute. And <laughs> yeah. she walks real... She doesn't walk the sexy... She walks kind of like a slouch... It's sexy, but... A slouched kind of casual girl, you know, regular girl with this young man who he is more traditional. He's also kind of fiery and they have a lot of, you know, face slapping things and uh, snappy retorts to each other. And she's trying to decide whether to marry him. And what happens is, is the, um, 
a lot of people don't know this actor anymore. His name is Paul Douglas. And Paul Douglas is actually the lead. And he's a kind of a decent guy, working guy. And he's married to the great, the fantastic Barbara Stanwyck. And Barbara Stanwyck is just terrific. She's one of the few people who's been able to hold their own in a scene with Marilyn. And I like this movie because it totally passes the Bechtel test. Bechtel test. Bechtel test, thank you. Uh, in, in as much as, yeah, they do talk a lot about men, but they're really talking about their desires, their uh, dreams for the future, um, freedom for women. Position in society, yeah. All, yeah, all of that. And she and Marilyn have scenes together where Stanwyck, being the older woman, is uh, sort of a, I won't say mentor, but she's someone that the Marilyn character looks up to, talks to about her feelings, and shares and, and admires. So there's this positive, admiring relationship between these two women, which is not common at that time. They really like to be uh, depict women as cats who are always sort of, unless they're actually related to each other. Right. You know, and so this is uh, it's a great movie. I won't go into the plot too much, but there's, uh, it mo- mostly focuses on Barbara Stanwyck and Paul Douglas, and Robert Ryan is in this as well. So we've got a triangle between the three of them, and it focuses mostly on that. But Marilyn is in there as and her boyfriend as sort of a sort of a, a reflection of what's going on in this triangle and the and the choices that Barbara Stanwyck is making. Marilyn's character is kind of like mirroring it. So what did you think of the film? Did you I mean did you enjoy it? I I actually I feel like I remember a lot of scenes, but I had a hard time remembering what the actual plot was. I did enjoy it. It felt kind of long. By the end I was kind of like this is dragging. I'm ready for it to wrap up, but mm-hmm. it was really fun to see Marilyn in that role. Yeah, I don't know. It gives me classic vibes. Uh, like I said, with the streetcar named Desire comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, and the setting is kind of just kind of unusual, like this fishing community, like fishing factory community. Yeah. It also, it also uh, has some social reverberations uh, from the World War II and the effect that it had on the men mm-hmm. who were coming back and on the communities and so forth. And it's, it's in there without being too blatant, I don't think. Robert, the Robert Ryan character predominantly carries that pain from the war. Robert Ryan looks he looks pretty handsome in this. He's Robert Ryan's one of those very interesting characters. He wasn't a character actor so much, but he he could go good or bad. He could be nasty or he could be sweet. And he could be good looking and could be not good looking. He was depending on who his character is. Yeah. You he's a kind of he's a he, chameleon. Well, he he's just got the kind of face and the kind of look that is at least for me easy to define as good looking or not good looking through my own eyes even though he hasn't changed a bit hmm. by what his character's supposed to be when his character is nice i think he's good looking and when his character's nasty i think he's ugly <laughs> <laughs> it's just that happens sometimes so uh it is a, that is a recommended film now at the end of this just to let you know we are going to each give you our th- top three maryland films that we think you've got to watch or It'll we, probably be a list that we construct together because they're going to be the same. Basically. It probably will be the th- the three yeah. must-watch Maryland films, and then uh, we will we will definitely get to that. But as we go along, we'll tell you if they're not good or not good films to watch. Yeah, we'll speaking. we'll put a we'll put up a comprehensive list, but we will tell you our favorite ones. Absolutely. Now, and of course, you can go into IMDb if you really want the real comprehensive list because that's got everything on there. And next comes the next really important film she did. It's called Don't Bother to Knock again. Early in her career, she played a much broader range of characters, and she shows that she actually can act. 
I just can't emphasize that enough because the attitude is that she really couldn't act. She was just Marilyn. Mm-hmm. She's just an icon, and she wasn't. Everything she did was calculated, and later she did get corralled into this particular mode. And I think she herself, even though she tried to bucket or wanted to bucket and wanted to play in the cherry orchard and do all kinds of really intense roles, she wasn't up to that kind of work. And she kind of knew it, and she ended up allowing herself I think to be corralled into these roles while she could still grouse about it because it's what she did well it was superb success and she got so much adulation and praise and even if she couldn't take it all in that's what she was going for that's what would help feed her is that kind of love and again we would have to put that word in quote but the kind of love that people felt for the persona she was projecting right if she wasn't if she wasn't getting the respect that she was craving, she was at least getting the admiration that she was craving. And she was magnificent at creating it. And we will get more into the subversive elements when, when we yeah. come a little bit later into Marilyn's career because she, uh, I've thought about this more since our last episode and I've come up with a, a really good mm. example that it's the kind of thing she did throughout her career that when, when we get to the calendar scandal, we will talk about that. Okay, so we're just going to go through a few more movies of this period and then we'll t- go ahead and shift back to the calendar scandal and her private life uh, marrying Joe DiMaggio and so forth. And then we'll, we'll, tr- we'll try to keep the private life and the public life kind of going along on parallel paths. So we talked about Don't Bother to Knock, which is... Oh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Her, her big role. Uh, she's, she's definitely the main... She's one of the two main characters in the movie, for sure. And she does play kind of a complex character in the sense that she she is a girl from the city who's staying with her uncle... Uh, who works in a hotel. She's at first seemingly kind of interest, uh, sorry, innocent country girl, very nice. You don't know why she's there, but then she she turns kind of over the course of the movie. The uh, actor who plays her uncle, who is a uh, elevator man at the hotel, is Elijah Cook Jr., who is a great favorite of mine. He's, yeah, he's one of our favorites. He was in um, Maltese, Maltese Falcon. Falcon, yeah. And various other ones. Uh, I won't, won't go into the long, long list of his long, long career, but you definitely should check him out and watch him. He has so much energy, and it's, it's definitely a nervous energy, but it changes with each role, so profoundly right sometimes it's a dangerous kind of scary energy and other times it's a very vulnerable energy and other nervous times it's a needy yeah. energy yeah he's very very good in this and he gets her the job babysitting and uh very interestingly um also in this is i think paul douglas again he's the dad to the oh. child that she's babysitting as a little and uh should we give this a little bit about the movie away not the end. We won't give the okay. end away, but we'll just talk about the development in the middle. So just to let you know, we're going to be doing that for the next few minutes. So Richard Widmark is the man she ends up focusing her attention on. And his person that he loves is Anne Bancroft, who's the great Mrs. Robinson of The Graduate and also married to Mel Brooks. And she's very, very beautiful in this. But she is not the star that Marilyn is. And you will watch this film as Marilyn's character disintegrates from, she's fragile, she comes in, she's a little unsure, and she ends up becoming dangerous, dangerously dangerously crazy. She's basically very divorced from reality. She's suffering from PTSD and probably some schizophrenia over the death of her lover, her, her fiancé, and she begins to think that Richard Widmark is him. 
at first it's like she's kind of covetous of like the earrings and the perfume and everything. And then she starts telling lies and then she starts getting, yeah, just more and more unhinged. Right. Out of desperation and out of need. But the important thing for our discussion is that her acting is just, when you watch this, look at her face, look at the gestures and listen very, very carefully to her voice. She hadn't yet developed that hyper distinct early Marilyn voice, the one where she enunciates everything very clearly, which works great when she's doing her comedy and she's doing that character. And it's something that Natasha had been drilling into her, telling her she needed to do this. And it drove directors crazy <laughs> sure. because that's not, they didn't want that. They went more natural. <laughs> but here you listen to, and you can hear some of that, but you can also hear a wonderful thoughtfulness in her gestures and in her voice because at one point she uses a very kind of normal voice when the character is kind of normal i mean it's it's wispy but it's yeah she seems like kind of like a yeah wafy and kind of like but 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 it's normal it doesn't have any hyper distinction it doesn't have that heavy wispiness and then what happens as she begins to lose her grasp on reality her voice changes more to the stereotypical Marilyn voice that we've come to know and associate that with the character. So she uses a range of, of voice techniques there. Neat. And I think we noticed uh, there are other other things about the way she way she uses her gestures and the tension in her body and that kind of thing throughout the film. So she does a really good job. Yeah, it's a good thriller. I was thrilled, honestly. I she does a good job at exuding some threatening aura at times even i think she tapped into something in terms of portraying a character that's kind of divorced from reality and thus could do anything yeah exactly you don't know which way she's going to jump and not because she's bad but exactly yeah i don't know whether it's because we were watching for her because i've seen this film before and zoe hadn't and so as i was watching it i felt like the first time i watched it i was still watching marilyn she was the interesting part in this film everybody else was fine all those are good actors, and they did their parts just fine, but they did it like regular acting. And she was bringing in her, well, her talent, but also I think her training. Her, and her training was more, she's more the young, modern actor. Even the actors, Richard Widmark and Bancroft, Paul Douglas, and the other actors, they were your basic, get up there, you say your lines, you make gesticulations, you put... Marilyn was in the method she was in the modern upcoming acting the most modern way to act at that time which was to go inside and to find motivation find sensory really trying to make it come from a very real place rather than putting it on like you'd put on makeup Mm -hmm. and so you can see the difference in the acting and of course there is the personality as well but i think that she's more riveting because she's coming from a more dynamic more modern place of acting awesome Let's move on, but I do want to say this is one of my more favorite oh, movies. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So I'm going to pop up to 1953, next film. It's not her next film, but it's the next one we're going to talk about called Niagara. And Niagara is really, a be- the color is beautiful. It's tech- I think it's Technicolor. Everything, everything is hyper colorful, like the yellow Macintoshes they wear at the Niagara Falls and the red dress she's wearing. Here she plays yet another very interesting dramatic role where she's a siren, but she's a selfish, scheming wife to Joseph Cotton, who is a beleaguered World War II veteran. And 
she is almost stereotypical. She doesn't have a lot of depth to the character. She plays it very interestingly. It's interesting to watch her. And the one little tidbit about this movie that's particularly interesting, I think, is that there's a, a couple of scenes where she's in the cabin at Niagara Falls uh, that she shares with her husband, and she's playing with this record, and she's very sultry and lying on the couch, and she's very disdainful of her husband. She, clearly, there's sexual problems in their marriage, and she's listening to this this song. It's very sexy music and so forth. In the original cut, she was going to sing this song, and the lyrics were considered too suggestive by the critics. So instead, before they get to those suggestive lyrics, Joseph Cotton, the husband, smashes the record player. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they worked it into the screenplay. Uh, and that's, you know, it's interesting. She's more like the don't bother to knock character, although the, the role doesn't allow the same range of choices in acting and so forth. Uh, so I thought it was okay, but I'm not really going to recommend it as I would say that's level two to watch. I'd say watch some of the other better films first. So now we are really at the turning point in her career. And the very next movie she makes is... Does it sound like it hot? No. Okay. I don't know. Your favorite. Oh, it's my favorite. Oh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah, your fave. I love that one. She plays Lorelai Lee in a movie that is based on a book that's really from, I believe, the 1920s or 30s by Anita Luz. And that's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And I've read the book. And Lorelai Lee in it is accurately portrayed in the movie. But the story is really, it's very different. But it's, it maintains the spirit of the Anita Luz book. In this one, Marilyn stars with Jane Russell as two gal pals. Yeah, it's a great team. It's a it's a musical, too, is kind of the other big thing about it. There are some big numbers and everything. And Marilyn usually does, in her later films at least, she does a song in, in most of her films, I want to say. But she sings more than one in this one. And uh, they have great wardrobes. And I love the premise, which is kind of, I don't know, a lot of the films she's in, I find that there is... Not only does Marilyn add something subversive into the mix, but a lot of the roles she plays are surprisingly nuanced, I guess, to some degree. Some of them. Yeah, and you can't, yeah. And in this one, this is the one that you quoted in the earlier part where Mm -hmm. she says, you know, I can be smart, but men don't like it. And so she plays both the duality of like this sex pot um, and ditzy gold digging woman and then there are flashes underneath and it it comes through her friendship too that she must have depth and that she must she actually cares about her friend she's doing things the way she is in order to meet her goals she's a gold digger but not in a way that is mercenary yeah distasteful or mercenary it's it's like an honest gold digging yeah yeah (laughs) and there's a, a bit in this i think actually even where it comes out more is when she is talking to that old man. That's really where the depth of character comes out, where she says that line about, I can be smart, but most men don't like it. She's talking to the the billionaire or millionaire father of her love interest, who's extremely rich, and that, that that's what wins him over. And he's like, okay, yeah. I guess you're not a bimbo. Right. <laughs> maybe you care about him. Right, or maybe you don't care about but him. But it's honest. But, but, but you're, not, you're not a waste of space. Yeah. Basically, you're likable. Mm-hmm. And... There's a bit, I just have to say this one scene. There are a couple scenes in the movie I just have to mention because this is a great movie. Yeah. It's really great. The humor is broad and everything, but it's just, it's so delightful and it's done so well. Oh, yeah. There's one bit where uh, Marilyn (laughs) is looking at the ship's roster to see, you know, who's the single men, you know, because usually in those days it would be Mr. and Mrs. So you'd always knew if there was a woman involved or not. 
So she's looking, and she she finds his name. <gasps> Henry Spofford the Third. Oh, he must be rich and unattached. And so you can just see her eyebrows wiggling with delight. And so she manages to she, she uh, bribes. I she, yeah, she bribes the. Um, Maitre D to seat her next to him at his table, and so she's sitting at the table, all buxom and beautiful, with her hair and her makeup. This all done, you know, it's really, you know, and up walks this little, little three and a half foot ten year old, <laughs> and he's got a voice like this, and, she, and his name is. I'm Henry Spofford the <laughs> Third. She says she stuck with this little ten-year-old. It was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the very few bits where you get a young child that's like, "Well, you're very beautiful, Miss," or whatever, and it's actually funny. Yes, you know? that's that gross. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then there is another bit to watch out for, which I actually enjoy now that I know every time where Jane Russell actually does a whole scene, uh, a song at the pool. And, the, yep. and it's the Olympic swimming team, the real Olympic swimming team. And so there are all these men running around in their trunks, and just in their trunks. And she's there, and she's got this cat suit on with her really highlighting her buxom yeah. figure. And and she's, her, she's a man chaser, but she doesn't care about money. She doesn't like money. No, she only wants, she wants love. She wants, and she wants a strong body. Well, she wants uh, <laughs> muscles or with corpuscles or something. Yeah. I forget what those words All the lyrics are. of the song are hilarious. <laughs> they are, and she's... Uh, going on and so at, at the very end of the song if you watch she's sitting on the edge of the pool with her legs crossed and the men are all leaping over her and diving into the pool well one guy accidentally doesn't quite make it and he actually knocks her into the pool and then she's in the water and then she comes up at the end and jane russell being the consummate professional that she was she comes up and she finishes the song in the pool <laughs> smiling and everything and they, they pick her up and, and they kept <laughs> and they kept they just kept that take it's a great take but yeah. you could really tell that she's being she's like, really not like falling in yeah, yeah. <laughs> she didn't she didn't do it on purpose no <laughs> yeah, yeah i like that bit so anyway that is a terrific film and just to note that if you ever have zoe over for karaoke oh yeah this is one of her signature songs diamonds are a girl's best friend yes yeah yeah, yeah. i've been getting better at it too you, i've been getting more cheers last time there was a, a musical theater lady at the bar who got really excited and so like i went down and like got her to sing a verse it was great <laughs> so you want to sing a few bars uh no that's right. oh darn <laughs> Now, that is, uh, that is the turning point, finally. Mm -hmm. Even though she'd done these other roles and she had gotten lots of positive reviews for her acting, this is the one that put her over. So it's very interesting, isn't it, that this, this completely, I mean, it took a lot of skill to do, but this comedic performance where she's so safe, so... <laughs> very in her niche, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing intimidating about her character at all. But I think that, again, the subversiveness comes where there's these little lines, she says, that, that speaks the truth. On the movie as a whole, and the song, uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, for example, the whole message of the song is, if you're going to have an affair with a guy, you better make sure he gives you cold, hard, like, cash, that he's, like, helping <laughs> you out financially and materially, or else he's no good, because he's probably not going to leave his wife for you. And so it's a, it's a very, like, um, hard... Uh, kind of harsh message almost but at the same time I would think it's really um but if you were time it's kind of feminist it's like it's all about like well if you're gonna if you're gonna do it you should look out for your own um, interests interests and like as a woman like use what you got and uh and, and remember you real know, and remember those looks it. those looks are not gonna last yeah 
And when they don't, when they go, he'll go. Yeah. Square cut or pear shaped, these rocks don't lose their shape. <laughs> now, it is an anti. It, well, I think it's realistic. I've just got to say this. In, in, in tribute to men, I have met many and know of many wonderful men who do not have affairs and give <laughs> diamonds and love their wives forever. <laughs> well, and I mean, they both end up with good guys in the end of the movie, so. Yeah, who, who they're going to be with them forever, even when they lose their shapes. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> but again, it's really, really a great film. Okay, I've got to stop saying that. This was the breakout time. This is also the time in Maryland's, everything is breaking out. Everything is breaking loose. She, uh, in this film, she uh, really crystallized the Marilyn Monroe character. She really became the mmm girl that she had been when she was young. And she met uh, her first, her second husband, Joe DiMaggio. Now, a lot of people don't remember him. And of course, anybody who's a baseball fan does know about him. Joe DiMaggio was like the Charles Lindbergh of his time because he was the baseball hero. He was like the all-American baseball hero that everyone just... Adore, I mean, adored him. All I can say is the huge, huge star. DiMaggio was uh, financially savvy. He really worked his deals. And back then, baseball players did not make the money they make mm. now. Not even in proportion. I mean, even if you adjust for, for inflation. But he made good deals for himself. He made some really good deals. He was very smart financially. He was very tight-fisted, very suspicious. He was not very sociable. He did not talk and chat. He was a silent guy, very internal. And uh, Italian Catholic, and he was again like her first husband, a traditional man of that period, where he wanted a wife to stay at home. He didn't want any other men to ever look at her or see her. He wanted her to have babies. I mean, interesting how they're drawn to the exact opposite of what they of you what. Know, yeah, the, but then the they look at Marilyn and their eyes go boinga boinga boinga. Yeah. I want to make her mine, oh you know, because she had that just riveting quality, and. So they meet. I don't think they hit it off that great at first. Apparently he did, but she was kind of, uh, she wasn't sure. She had other irons in the fire. She was working through things. But he was persistent and he was steady. And I think that that's the thing that she was drawn to is his steadiness, his rootedness, his groundedness. He had this great family uh, and he like bought a house for them and he lived with them and she got to know the family. And that's one of the things that, that's a real characteristic of Marilyn's Motif. relationships yeah. yeah is that she would meet the families and they would love her and she would love them and basically her po- the positive part of the relationship was with the family because even when things would break up the family would still love her and she would still love them and she really ensconces herself in it as a daughter-in-law and they get along well and she'll be in the kitchen with the mom and she'll be uh, watching mm. baseball with the dad and whatever she just got along really well with everybody. And that was, I think, a great attraction for her to Joe DiMaggio, as well as his groundedness. And he really knew what was going on business-wise, and he did advise her a lot. But he kept wanting her to marry him. They dated for about two years, and she was kind of putting it off. Because what she would do is she'd say, oh, yes, I want that. Yes, I want a family. Yes, I want you know all domesticity. But she didn't want it. And underneath, she just kept going her own way, making these films, wearing these low-cut dresses that, I mean, like, she'd go out. And we look at those dresses today and go, Oh, come on. They're sexy, but they're not like risque. Yeah. yeah, at all. But then they were risque, and he did not, he wanted her to wear, you know, he would have had her wearing, you know, robes if he could, you know, muumuu if he could, because he didn't want anyone to see her, her figure or what she looked like. So she continued on with her. She was red hot at this point, red hot. 
and she had to renegotiate her contract. She always had money problems. She always had trouble with the studio and just like women today, wrenching money out of the studio, the money that they're really worth out of the studio. But she went on to make another film after this with Robert Mitchum called The River of No Return and it's a Western. She Hmm. sings a song in it. She did not like that. She did not think that she should be singing a song in this Western. She uh, didn't really didn't like the film much. She just didn't think it was very good film. But I think she liked working with Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum was a real man's man. But he had known her back when she was Norma Jean Baker, or Norma Jean Darty. He worked in the factory with her, I think, or she, or he worked with her husband. So he knew her and her husband at the time. And so he mm. always, he said he always just thought of her as little Norma Jean. So, sure, yeah. yeah. So there was never any, you know, apparently, wink, wink, nudge, nudge affair going on. Although both of them tended to be affair-driven people. So there was that positive aspect to the whole thing. But it was really rough for her because they were on this river. When mm. they say the river no return, they were on a river. They were on white water on a raft. Oh, wow. I saw this movie a really long time ago. And he was, a, I think he was a widower with a little kid. So I'm remembering that. And they're on this raft and she's wearing these tight pants. And it just looked like it must have been hell <laughs> to be on that film. So she did that. And then she moved on to There's No Business Like Show Business where she sings a song. And she's just, she's ill-placed in the film. And she's, you know, she's fine. And the, the film is so-so. I, again, I saw this a long time. It stars Ethel Merman, who was a great Broadway star. When this voice, there's no business like show business. It's really intense voice. And Ethel Merman, I'm just going to say this for those of you who are real film geeks, was one time married to Ernest Borgnine. Picture that. Okay. And then there's Donald O'Connor and Dan Daly, Johnny Ray, who was known as the Screamer. He sang, uh, oh, Yes, I Am the Great Pretender. He had a huge hit in the in the 60s. I love that song. And Mitzi Gaynor. And they're a family of show people who are on the stage. And so it's about being in show business. It's a musical. And Marilyn is one of these people. But again, it, it, it just isn't a very good fit. And it is, it's an okay movie. And if you really want to see some Technicolor and singing and stuff, singing and dancing, Dan Daly's a good dancer. And Donald O'Connor's fantastic. He's the guy in Singing in the Rain. He's the shorter guy who he does that dance, make him laugh. And he actually runs up the wall and flips over. That's that film. Now we're coming to a very interesting period. During this period, two things happen. One is that the nude calendar scandal breaks. It pretty much breaks after Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in the early, that 53 period, 54. Oh, actually 54, I think. The nude calendar somehow starts to be noticed and the reporters are reporting about it and the studio finds out about it and there are these uh, naked pictures of Marilyn. And so it had been put out there and it's like, this is a career ender. This is the kind of thing that it will end your career. We have to... We have to deal with this. We have to squash it. We have to, like they did with the Joan Crawford nudie films. It just became a big thing. And Marilyn, this is where we see her medal as a subversive blonde. She is an amazing operator here. First of all, she got one, I forget which columnist was. I think it was Luella Parsons, I think. Luella Parsons was like, if you've heard of Hedda Hopper, she was like another Hedda Hopper. She was a columnist, a gossip columnist, one of the 
top in the, in the world, in the country. She had so much power. She had this column that millions of people read. And so these were the people that had to keep be kept placated. If they didn't like you, they could try to ruin your career. And they did ruin people by repeating salacious gossip, repeating things as true that weren't true. But it, they just, they had so much power. What Marilyn did is she picked one of them to become her confidant, to give them an exclusive. So right away, that person is on her side because she's giving them something special and exclusive. So she sits down with this person and she says, and this is what she says, this is a quote. So she starts out with the one prong is sincerity, the way she deals with this. I was broke and I needed money. Oh, the calendar's hanging in garages all over town. Why deny it? Besides, I'm not ashamed of it. She said that like her car was going to be taken away and she needed money to pay her car because if she didn't have a car, she couldn't work and then she would have starved. And she needed money for food. It really was tugging at the heartstrings. She says, yes, I did this because I was trying to survive. And she got a very sympathetic hearing and she said it very sincerely and she didn't get defensive. And that is brilliant. She didn't get defensive. She wasn't defending herself. She just said, I'm not ashamed. This is how it was. And people responded responded to it it totally Mm. and then once she got over that hump then she started using humor Mm. and made light and sort of brought people in as like friend you know in a friendly way and so apparently one reporter asked her so asked her was it really true that she had nothing on at all while she was posing for this calendar and she said i had the radio on (laughs) (laughs) cute very cute okay so that was the first thing and she handled that very, very well, but she did something else. The second thing that happened, and this is the thing I honestly believe that this is the reason that tipped her over because Joe DiMaggio had been proposing repeatedly for two years wanting to marry her. Suddenly, she agrees to marry him. So right during the height of the calendar scandal, they announce their engagement and they get married. Uh And so she's going to marry the most popular man in the world, Mr. Clean, Mr. DiMaggio. Yeah. Our nation's got its lonely eyes on you. Exactly. Exactly. So right there, those two pincer movements on this scandal, she actually shifted it from being a career wrecker to actually a bit of an enhancement. Oh, yeah. When they say all publicity is good publicity, she made it good publicity. Yeah, but she was able to transgress and make it work. And I like this. And I just want to, I ha, this is in my head, so I just have got to say it. I'm talking about Joe DiMaggio, and he was all these things I said. I just want to acknowledge that at the same time DiMaggio was out there working, there was another man, another baseball player, who kind, who deserves some credit for being a really important American icon, and that's Jackie Robinson, who broke the color barrier of Major League Baseball. For those of you who don't know, in Major League Baseball, Black players were not allowed to play. They were in their own, called the Negro Leagues, and no matter how good they were, and Jackie Robinson wasn't the only one, but he was sort of the spearhead spearhead of the whole thing. He was the one, and then all of the attention was on and all the pressure was on. And so I just want to kind of give him a shout out and say, you know, Joe DiMaggio absolutely was all those things, but at the same time, there were other really important things going on in baseball and in the impact baseball had on our culture. So I guess we are, we did not intend this Maryland thing to be three parts. 
at all. It's definitely going to be. Yeah. I hope I'm not yakking too much of too much detail, but I it's just just the stuff that I'm really interested in. Yeah. No, I think it's fascinating. Okay. And then so we've got the the third part of Marilyn's career to go. We've got the continued rise. I think everyone knows that she and Joe DiMaggio they only last nine months. Wow, uh, that's really short. Yeah, yeah we'll start out by talking about their relationship and what happened there. And then uh, we've been talking about these films. And then we'll talk about her her last, what I consider, last couple great films, Seven Year Itch and... And Some Like It Hot, uh, Some finally. Like It Hot, that's a good one. And we'll talk about her terrible film, The Prince and the Showgirl, uh, The Showgirl and the Prince, The Prince and the Showgirl, sorry. <laughs> and her last film, her last couple of films, and sort of what happened at yeah. the very end so the next time you R.I.P. M.M. yes uh, we love you it'll be a little bit sad but we're very passionate about Marilyn so I yeah. think it'll be fruitful and I just wanted to let you know that we will be going on to discuss a little bit about uh, her subsequent imitators Jane Mansfield and I'm not sure maybe a little bit of Deanna Doors we'll mention mm-hmm. Sabrina who was the uh, English Jane Mansfield and then I want to go back and talk about what gave rise to Marilyn the Jean Harlow a little bit about Betty Grable, and that will be some education for Zoe and certainly some more education for me, too. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Have a great night. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand cheese sandwich. Grand-